0: Hello and welcome to a special edition of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City, coming to you from Washington, D.C. We have two special guests, Susan Glasser, who is a staff writer at The New Yorker, and Peter Baker, who is the chief White House correspondent of The New York Times, who have, as I suspect you know, because you are an audience full of foreign policy nerds, uh, written um, a book that has already been widely hailed as one of the best of the year. The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III. Um, and although it won't matter a whit, I, 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 I do want to add my uh, 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 praise and appreciation for the book. Um, you've gotten fantastic reviews. I read it, obviously, from the perspective of being a sort of foreign policy nerd, um, which is a war perspective, I'll admit. But the 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 book to me was incredibly relevant because it was one of those books that, while it uses James Baker as a kind of a lens on an era, reveals what happened as American politics morphed from the old school ways. Uh, that we read about and and sometimes romanticize to the era of donald Trump and and Baker's role in all of that seems much uh, uh, g- greater to me even than I had thought uh, previously um was that part of the motivation I, I I know you started the book seven years ago and and that means um uh, prior to Trump but as you, we're working on the book and living through the trump era did that resonance uh strike you guys
1: yeah absolutely uh david thanks so much for having us on uh you know we're uh, i guess honorary deep staters uh <laughs> having been in washington long enough to earn that uh accolade and really I think that actually was an impetus. Even in the pre-Trump moment, we saw in Baker's story the possibility to write uh, you know, a bigger book about Washington and what it was and what it had become. Uh, not in some nostalgic sepia-toned way, but I think with a very real understanding that there have been structural uh, shifts uh, uh, as well as shifts in the kind of people who, who make up Washington and its politics that have led to the sense that the deals of the 1980s and 1990s were were simply impossible anymore, right? That this was a story we saw from the beginning of Washington from the end of Watergate to the end of the Cold War. And part of it was unpacking what is the moment and what is the man and where do they intersect?
0: Um, yeah, and, 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 and I think in some ways, and, and again, this is just the third party reaction of somebody who read it, strikes me is that there were these two moments um there was the moment of the um the sort of the last days of um well what might be described as the wise men era you know the, the 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 era described in that book where you had uh sort of people with Ivy league vintages and, and big, big groups of connections, managing things quietly behind the scenes. Um, And, 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 and moved into the scorched earth era. Um, And, and that, you know, you have a a line in the book that, that struck me. um, uh, Because of course, Baker oversaw the. The. Bush v. Gore contest, and and, and, and you have this, you end a paragraph saying, in a subsequent book on the recount, the journalist Roger Simon wrote that the episode showed how far Baker was willing to take the fight. Maybe Al Gore was afraid of scorching the earth, but not Jim Baker, Simon wrote. He would not only scorch it, he would roast it in the fires of righteous indignation. Um, and you know, P- Peter, one of the things that strikes me about that is this this contrast. But you know, we, we live in you know the Mitch McConnell Republican Party, the scorched earth Republican Party, um, and and it was this old school guy who helped see in that era, right?
2: Yeah, I think you could uh, go back and trace a lot of what we see today in you know moments of that era for sure. The obviously the recount, the 1988 race where you know Dukakis is flayed uh, and as a as an unpatriotic uh, criminal coddling uh, leftist, and I, you know and that and that's one of the you know hallmarks of Baker's time at the top. The difference was that he could be a knife fighter, would be a knife fighter when it came to electioneering and getting to the place that you get in office. But once he gets into office, he tries to get something done. That The point of being ruthless in a campaign isn't just to be ruthless in a campaign. It is to actually get to the place where you can accomplish something later. Right. So literally a month after the 1988 race uh, where you know we had Willie Horton and the flag and Pledge of Allegiance. He literally goes to Bob Strauss's apartment. Bob Strauss was the former DNC chairman and sits down for dinner with Strauss and Jim Wright, the Democratic speaker of the House, to talk about how can they make a bipartisan uh, solution to the Contra war that has so debilitated Washington for a decade. And that's I think what's really changed in the in the time since Baker's uh, period at the top.
0: Yeah, you know, one of the things that strikes me, Susan, is that um Baker had a level of success as a senior level official that we may never see again, but whether it's serving as chief of staff twice or um his his tenure as secretary of the treasury, his tenure as secretary of state, other senior jobs as well. Um, and you know, I found, you know, as 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 happens, I'm sure you guys go through this too. Periodically, people go, well who is the best secretary of state? You know, who's the most, you know, and, and, and the insiders don't say Kissinger. They don't, they don't, you know, they don't give you the answer that, that the, 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 the media might, they almost always say to me Baker. Why, why, what What was the the magic formula that made Baker stand out?
1: Well, first of all, I have to say like the idea of a little bit of sheer competence, uh, or, you know, even competence being your brand as a high official uh, is. Uh, can you imagine? I mean, wouldn't that be nice? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? uh, so I do think there's uh, to the extent there is nostalgia that's probably bipartisan at this point for Jim Baker definitely revolves around uh, his 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 reputation largely earned, Peter and I found in doing this book, for uh, excellence and competence, right, especially in that chief of staff job. It's the reason why Democrats and Republicans look to his model. Uh, When you talk about Secretary of State, I think there is a strong argument, uh, and Peter often, you know, likes to make it for uh, Baker over Kissinger, and it largely revolves around consequentialism, right? It it revolves around uh, this sort of notion of not just Uh, being successful in the day-to-day carrying out of the job. We're not, you know, in some Kissingerian sense, sitting there and, you know, dreaming up grand openings to China. The the notion of uh, Secretary of State as the ultimate international relations theorist job, right? Like, obviously, Jim Baker did not have that approach, right? He doesn't have uh, uh, a well-honed view on the Treaty of Westphalia, Uh, but what he did was he, he met a revolutionary moment uh, with the ability to uh, bring probably unparalleled crisis management skills uh, and a very, very strategic sense of what was required. And you know I think it was the pinnacle, not only of his career, but probably of modern American diplomacy uh, because it showed a level of engagement, sophisticated discipline, Rigor uh, and you know a willingness actually to be uh, bold when the moment required and cautious uh, when uh, it wasn't. It, the creativity of his diplomacy got things done in a way that you know hindsight makes the end of the Cold War seem much more inevitable than it was. And I think that especially in the unification of Germany uh, and the creation of. Uh, the first Gulf War coalition as a model, as a very self-conscious model for the kind of internationalism uh, that Baker and Bush envisioned as the basis of a post-Cold War order. Those two things are extremely significant accomplishments, and they're actually somewhat outliers uh, in a subsequent uh, performance and arguably in a performance before for American diplomacy that really wasn't uh, all that dazzling at times.
2: I would add one more thing, by the way, that he had an opportunity, an advantage that probably no other Secretary of State had, which is to say the friendship that he had with George H.W. Bush was not merely a political alliance of convenience. It was not merely a you know, an alignment of philosophical, uh, you know, ideas. This was a friendship that was born years before Baker had anything to do with politics. This is a friendship that was real and 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 rooted in genuine, uh, profound. Uh, affection for each other. And that gave Baker a power that a Kissinger and and no other secretary of state that I can think of in modern times anyway had, because people knew and assumed when Baker spoke that he spoke for Bush, that he had a he was, in fact, so close to ba- to Bush that, that no one could get between them. Whereas with Kissinger and Nixon, you had this—you know—you've written about this, David. I mean, you know, look the at the all the sucking and, up on those oh, tapes, the, right? The, the psychodrama <laughs> between Kissinger and Nixon—who, you know—it just—it's—it's—it's it's, it's debilitating. You would think at times, and 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 so Baker had an advantage that no other state had.
0: You know, it's interesting because in having written a lot about the, the NSC, you would say the same thing about Scowcroft. And you know they were best friends too, Bush and Scowcroft, and in fact they wrote their memoir together. That you know they were buddies, very very different relationships, but it also led to at the beginning of the Bush presidency, Scowcroft and Bush sitting down together and saying, "Okay, this is how this is going to work," and they both knew the other had access. They both knew the other had a special relationship and that their roles were well-defined. And I can't think of a a nucleus of an administration foreign policy apparatus that was so founded on profound, deep relationships.
1: Well, that's right, because the other member of this troika, you know, if you will, the opposite of the dysfunctional Reagan uh, White House troika, the the Bush uh, administration, George H.W. Bush administration troika uh, also included Dick Cheney, who, uh, you know, Politics had diverged in many ways uh, from Jim Bakers. He is the Uber Hawk where Baker has remained very uh, deeply skeptical of military engagement overseas. But in the context of that Bush 41 administration, Dick Cheney was the guy who brought Jim Baker to the party in Washington in the Ford administration. Uh, people forget that. And, and I in, in many ways, actually doing one of the surprises of this book for me was realizing how that actually uh, the Jerry Ford mafia <laughs> was responsible in many ways for the Bush administration and for uh, much of this uh, uh, end of the Cold War policymaking. And so it was actually Cheney as a young uh, White House chief of staff who plucked uh, Baker out of the obscurity of a commerce department job and uh basically pushed him into the roles that would lead to him running Ford's 1976 presidential campaign. The two of them remain uh friends and fishing and hunting buddies for the subsequent couple decades when Cheney was in Congress.
2: Even to this day. Yeah,
1: and even to this day, even when they have you know notably differed over the George H. George W. Bush. Administration and the war in Iraq, uh, they're still close friends, and so they had. You had Cheney, you had uh, Baker, you had Scowcroft, and Bush, and Bush, and Scowcroft was, I think, as you have written, you know, he was acutely conscious. Of how to manage Baker, understanding that Baker was both a principal in his own right at this point in time, having mastered Washington, but also uh, that he knew there was a, je- a certain kind of jealousy unexpressed there—that he was the one day to day close to Bush in the White House. It's really it is a remarkable and interesting story.
0: Yeah, it also, I mean, but the, the the closeness of Scowcroft and Baker to Bush kept Cheney in check during that administration, and I remember. Sitting down, I had occasion to have lunch with Cheney when he was Secretary of Defense, and and he was a very different guy. He was, you know, he was focused on how do I run this Defense Department, how you know, how do I serve this overall agenda. You didn't get this sense of overweening ambition. Let me pick up on a couple of other uh, uh, aspects of Baker's character because I think one of the reasons that the book is so rich and so effective is because, like all great biographies it reveals the complexities and idiosyncrasies of the guy and it's not a hagiography by any by any stretch of the imagination but let's let's just take a couple picking up and and maybe i'll direct this to peter and then another different one to susan but obviously feel free to to respond in in any way you like one of the things that struck me one of the little scenes that struck me um uh, and, and you can clarify the, the, the scene exactly, but around the time of the fall of the Soviet Union, Baker was going to go and make a speech. And in the scene, he wakes up at 4.30 in the morning and he goes, you know, oh, my God, we have to add in this brief phrase of, 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 of modifying language so it doesn't look like we are trying to blow up the entire Soviet Union into, you know, atomize it, right? And, and he calls up Margaret Tutwiler, who's part of this team that he always has with him, and, and they, they, they put it into the speech. And to me, you know, particularly, I guess, living in the, the Trump era, the attention to detail, very lawyerly, uh, but also sort of the essence of diplomacy, where, where, where nuance speaks loudly.
2: I think that's exactly right. He could anticipate how things would sound other people. Right. And that's something you don't see today. Obviously, Trump couldn't care less what the Germans think when he uh, when he trashes them or the Russians, uh, when he praises them. I think he, you know, Baker, in that instance, you're right. He wanted to make sure the word Commonwealth, it was in there so that as the, the Soviet Union was breaking up, there was still allowed the idea that there would be this Commonwealth of Independent Nations, which was kind of a fiction uh, then and now that there was still some sort of a relationship between these 15 new countries. And he didn't want to like poke Gorbachev in the eye. And he recognized four o'clock in the morning that you know, not having that word in there might be seen in Moscow is more provocative than he meant it to be. And he understood how uh, the person on the other side of the table operated, how they thought. And that's what I think what made him a good deal maker because he could give that person things that they needed that didn't cost him anything while then extracting what he did need and that was important to him.
0: Yeah, of course what a what a incident like that reveals is deep knowledge of the subject matter, deep knowledge of the various characters involved um, uh, and the ability to think in a nuanced way and all that comes together for competence and I think you know one of the reasons that the book stands out in the era of Trump is it's not just this way it captures the transition to this period um, that that there is this kind of craving. You know, Joe Biden's running a campaign based on decency, which, you know, we, who would have ever thought, you know, decency was going to be the big selling point of a presidential candidate. You know, you, you would have thought something, else. but but there's also this sort of craving for for competence. But Susan, you know, on the other side of this, Baker um is 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 not a small personality. He's not Scowcroft behind the scenes he is capable of stepping out in front of the camera and saying to the israelis this is the phone number of the white house give us a call um and 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 so and and by the way he chafes again you know that you talk about the fact that periodically you know bush says well if you're so smart how come i'm vice president or how come i'm president you know th- there is this sense that that Baker sometimes feels like he is the smartest, most capable guy in the room. Um, how how does that large personality um figure in all of this? And in in your sense, is the is the strength that it's there this is the strength that he's able to sublimate it?
1: You know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I do think that this tension between and, he, and even his very palpable by the end yearning to be seen, to transcend his political background and to be seen uh, not as a handler or fixer, but as a a principal in Washington terms, as a statesman. Uh, you know, this was this was his own sort of narrative and drama. Right. You know, to sort of like uh, uh, move and grow beyond uh, what had brought him to the party in the first place. And uh, I do think that especially in the Bush presidency, you see that most palpably. Uh, you know he just he doesn't want to go back uh, to running George Bush's campaign in 1992, even when Bush is in huge trouble and uh, you know undone not. By uh, the international diplomacy that's been the focus of the presidency, but by the economic decision making and the the moving of the country into recession and Bush's own perceived indifference to domestic politics, you know, uh, Baker made it very clear uh, that you know he thought they had fucked up. Uh, you know, behind the scenes, uh, I'm assuming you, this is not a a family friendly <laughs> deep state radio. No, no, um, no,
0: it's never family friendly.
1: Uh, you know. <laughs> Look, the truth is, is that, you know, Baker didn't want to go. Uh, he had to be dragged into the 92 campaign. The Bush family, uh, Barbara Bush was really mad at him, called him the invisible man. There was a sense that he was looking out for himself uh, and not uh, being loyal to to the family uh, without whom he he would be back in Houston. Uh, and I do think as a diplomat, if you're asking about him as a secretary of state, I think that his stature, uh, his willingness to play the principal uh, and not the subordinate was a part of what made him able to close these deals and to get things done. Uh, He flew around the world, uh, you know, uh, not only speaking with the voice of the president, which is something not a single one of uh, today's cabinet can claim uh, now or ever. Um, So he had the stature. He also was willing to use it. Uh, and there was a sense that, you know, he was there to play hardball. And I, we've all seen in Washington how the the um, an outsized reputation for something uh, is its own form of power. Uh, and so Baker's reputation, not only for competence, but also for being a closer, I think probably helped him close many deals in the same way that, you know, Woodward's reputation uh, as a journalist means that many people cave and tell him everything. Uh, because they think he already knows it. I think that that was sort of the the power uh, and the mystique of Jim Baker by the end uh, had a lot to do with his success, that success begets its own success in international diplomacy and in American politics.
0: Yeah, one of the other things that the book reveals to me uh, or reconfirms to me, because I kept seeing it in, in other stuff, including books that I was doing, was um, what you might call, well, what I might call, the uh, the sitcom rule of 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 uh, Washington uh, politics, and what I mean by that is, when you watch a good sitcom on television, and you know, or you watch any kind of good show, you you look any? at it and you say, "What?" Pardon me. Are there any? <laughs> well, I don't know if there are any at the moment, but you know, you watch Veep or something, you know, and it's and you say, "Well, why is this better than everything else?" And it's always because the whole cast is good. It's not just that there's one person, you know, and you sort of look at it and you say, "Wow, there's seven great people in it," and I'm be willing to watch any of those great people. And he, here is Baker, and I think one of the things that I find idiosync, you know, interesting is that here is Baker, and he's got this great team. You know, he's got um, Bob Zelick and 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 he's got you know Kimmet, and he's got these other folks that he keeps around him who are themselves often referred to as the best and the brightest, and he knows you know, it takes a great team in order to produce great results, but he's not that close to them. You know, mm-hmm. he doesn't, he's not buddies with them. Right. I, I also thought that was kind of interesting as a way of, of, of sort of managing things. And you, you, you talk about that well, and, and you know, perhaps you will hear.
2: Yeah. It's, it's Bob Zellick, of course, as you say, one of his right-hand people told us that he didn't think that uh, Jim Baker knew, his wife's name for, for years, right? They never socialized together. He always referred to him as Mr. Baker. Uh, there was this formality about the man that didn't invite personal, emotional connections, and yet they were super loyal to him. I mean, of course, you chronicled so many national security teams. I haven't found anybody, doing the research for this book seven years, we didn't find that many people who worked for him, who knew him closely, who was anything other than super loyal and super, um, you know, committed to to him there could have been there were people who were outside his orbit obviously who were quite critical and quite uh oppositional but the people who worked for him remain loyal by the way how much of a contrast is that right some of trump's biggest critics are the people who actually worked for him because they know what he's like inside the room baker did not invite Personal connection, but he invited uh, uh, loyalty and commitment, I think.
1: Yeah, and I do think, David, that your observation around the, the excellence of his team as a purposeful strategy for managing these uh, high level, high stress jobs in Washington is something that really stands out. And obviously, it applies far beyond Washington political jobs. Baker has this enormous self confidence and his uh, willingness to hire, you know, to both be an A person and to hire other A. Uh, people is clearly one of the secrets of his success. You know, he's the opposite of one of those insecure personalities who needs to be the smartest person in the room at all times, who, you know, has to be seen, uh, you know, Allah, our current leader as this, you know, the the source of all ideas and expertise, quite the opposite. He uh, was absolutely willing to call upon policy expertise you know we haven't mentioned dick darman but clearly right. darman was probably the most gifted policy entrepreneur of his generation understood how the levers of government work in a way that actually jim baker did not you know baker comes in as reagan's white house chief of staff and is seen as sort of the washington hand it's it's kind of amazing and ironic because baker at this point had like a year at the commerce department <laughs> in the ford administration and that's what counted as expertise uh to the uh, uh, sort of Reagan revolutionaries who were coming in, uh, it speaks to his reputation for competence, but, but the point being that it was people like Dick Darman, uh, you know, who really made Baker look good and he understood and was willing to do whatever it took to, to make himself both look good and be successful. And that is something, I think if you studied a lot of people, uh, you know, who were flourishing in really big jobs, you would find this common attribute of a willingness to hire, foster, promote uh, uh, individual excellence outside of their own person.
0: Yeah. No, and I have to say, you know, and going to I arrived in Washington in 1993, and you know, you sort of meet people and you go around and 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 so forth. And Darman, Zalek, Kimmett, you know they were the gold standard you know they you know even even though they were republicans people would say you know the, darman is the most brilliant guy around or, you know darman thought that too by the way just so <laughs> but 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 you know they were they were kind of extraordinary uh extraordinarily talented people we only have 3 4 minutes left i i guess you know i'd like to bring it back to you know where we are in this era and you know you begin i think if i recall correctly the book you know talking about trump and baker considering voting for Trump and Baker saying Trump is crazy and uh, but sort of holding his cards close to his vest in terms of, you know, would he actually vote for? And um, the, you know, there's a lot of talk now. Why isn't George W Bush endorsing Joe Biden? You know, some people in his administration are, in fact, I think, I don't know that anybody's done the count, but I don't think there's ever been more people, you know, from leadership positions in an incumbent's party who've declared themselves for the opposition than we have right now. Um, but at the core of the core of this sort of Bush empire, not so much. Why do you think that is?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. It really uh, it's one that we struggle with in some ways over the life of this book, you know, first of all, Bush, I think George W. Bush will not vote for Trump. I think we could say that with a a certain degree of of certainty on it. He may not publicly, he probably won't, you know, only 10 days left. He won't publicly make that point, but he didn't vote for him last time. I don't see why he would vote for him this time. Uh, It is a mystery on some level why Baker doesn't use the Bush family rejection of Trump to then reject him himself, because everybody would understand if Baker said, look, my friends, the Bush's, uh, you know, don't don't back Trump, and therefore I'm with with the Bushes. Uh, And yet we we had these five years of conversation with him, watching him wrestle with this issue, wrestle with what to make of Trump. Trump is exactly the anti-baker in so many ways, both in temperament and seriousness of purpose and character and integrity and politics and policy and all of those things. And yet, uh, as you say, he calls him nuts and, and crazy. And yet, yeah, at one point he says was, well, I think I could vote for Biden, you know, because in fact the truth is Biden, aside from ideology, is his kind of Washington player, somebody who'd rather have a deal if he could get one, uh, who does care about institutions and does care about internationalism. And then a couple months later, he says, no, don't say that. I'm not going to vote for Biden. I, I'm going to stick with my party, even if my party has left me. And that to me has been, and Susan, I think has been as parable of the modern Republican establishment. Right? They they have a president who is ostensibly their leader they don't like they don't trust they don't think is is uh, they don't respect and yet so many of them have stuck with him they've they've reconciled themselves to him uh for whatever reason i think that baker represents that
1: yeah if somebody tells you over and over again in answer to the same question we kept asking him you know the same answer you you at some point you have to listen to what he says right you know and he's telling you who he is and that that you know identity as a republican uh, means something overwhelming to him. I mean, look, if you want to understand why is it that more than 40% of the American people, uh, and even possibly a lot more than 40% of the American people are going to vote for Donald Trump, you know, 10 days from now, uh, despite 220,000 dead Americans, a massive economic recession, uh, you know, being manifestly, you know, unfit for office according to many of the people who work most closely with him. This is the answer. You know, this is the answer. It still doesn't make sense, but it's the
0: answer. Well, I I think the great success of this book, and it's a great journalistic success. It's a beautifully written book. Um, It is, to use the word, that's used about the best biographies. You know, it's a magisterial book. But to me, what is great about it is it illustrates everything in Baker's story that is different from this era. And it illustrates every step that got us to this era because it was Baker who made Reagan and the Reagan revolution, you know, successful to some degree. And that led in a variety of different ways um, uh, from who it elevated to things like, you know, you know, getting rid of the fairness doctrine and so forth to where we are today. It was Baker who was involved in the Willie Horton and the sort of that kind of politics Baker, at Bush v. Gore, um, on Baker's team on Bush v. Gore, we have uh, now Chief Justice Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. Um, so you know they, you know he he has some sort of authorship over this kind of uh, corrupted court that we've got here. Um, and so he's both. He's a paradox. He's a very rich lens. Um, and I think that's why everybody should read it. And of course, our audience of you know, sort of ten, tens of thousands of deep state nerds out there, um, this is their cup of tea. This they they will go, they will sit, and they immerse themselves in it. I strongly recommend them to go out and get it if they haven't. I congratulate you guys on a spectacular achievement uh, and on all the other good work you're doing. So keep that up, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again after the dust has settled and. If we still have a democracy in a couple of months. Um, But uh, (laughs) thank you, Peter. Well, (laughs) I'm not. But thank you, Peter. Thank you, Susan. And congratulations again. And everybody else, we've got from now through the election, multiple new special um, episodes. We did a great one yesterday with Jim Clapper and Tim Weiner and Laura Rosenberger on Russian influence on the elections. We've got one later today that we're doing with uh, Miles Taylor and uh, Olivia Troy and, and, you know, looking at people who've left the administration a uh, great one next week on, 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 on election threats and management, in addition to our regular stuff. So go to the DSrnetwork.com, download the episodes, uh, stay, stay in touch. And if I didn't say it once, I'll say it again, by the man who ran Washington. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.